0: The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. I always try to seek God's face in terms of how he would best want me to feed and lead his flock from his word going forward, and I think 1 Timothy will be a very, very good book for us in the future. But I first wanted to go through Genesis 37 through 50. It's one of my favorite sections of the Bible since I became a believer myself, and I hope you'll love it as well. Let me give you some things that I've been praying about as I've sought the Lord in ways that he will hopefully serve your growth in him through this study. First, I think it's important to read and study a book like Genesis so that we balance Old Testament revelation with New Testament revelation. We don't want to forget the fact that all Scripture is breathed out by God and all of it is profitable. And so it's very important for us to know how to read the Old Testament well. There's some other particular reasons why I descended on Genesis 37 through 50. Here's what they are it's rather accessible. It's a fairly well known part of the Bible, so hopefully we can merge right into it and really grasp a lot of it. But also, we need clarity because, don't we know, the most well known parts of the Bible are normally the most easily misunderstood. Depending on your age, throughout this entire study, you may picture Donnie Osmond in the amazing Technicolor Dream Coat. I hope you won't, but you may have that mental image. If you're younger, you may have an animated Ben Affleck in your mind, but hopefully, Genesis 37 through 50 will clarify some of the misconceptions we have. But having visited many of you in your home and knowing you now as your pastor, one of the reasons I really was moved, I believe, by the Lord to preach this section to you in particular is because this section of the Bible offers perseverance and hope. One of the clearest. This is an example of true history. This is a real person that suffered tremendously And yet God had a good, sovereign purpose for it. And I know from time in many of your living rooms, many of you also are experiencing suffering. And here is a section of Scripture where God can offer great perseverance. Did you know, actually, that's why the Old Testament was written? Romans 15 verse 4 says this, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So God actually has revealed this story so that you and I would have the perseverance and hope that we need to finish well. Now, because it's narrative, narrative works very different from epistle or law. If I'm preaching through Jude, I can preach two verses and that's enough. But to preach narrative correctly, we need to preach large blocks of it. So today it's ambitious, but I'm gonna preach chapter 37, 38, and 39. Now, here's something that that I hope will happen to you practically. Maybe you're one of those people that you're used to reading um, a daily devotional like the daily bread, or or maybe you're one of those people that's used to reading a chapter of the Bible. None of those things are bad, but I want you to try something if you've never done it before. Would you sit down this week and read the entire book of Genesis? One reading, no moving, (laughs) except to get a drink, I guess, but then come back and finish Genesis because when you see all 50 chapters, you're much more likely to get it right. When you see how the whole works together. Let me actually expand that a little bit further. The Bible is written in chunks that are recorded as such on purpose. I'm I'm not upset. I'm thankful that something that's become trendy recently are chronological Bibles where, where you can read the Bible in the order that people think it happened historically. That's not a bad thing, but did you know it's actually a better thing to read the Bible the way it's preserved for us? The Pentateuch makes a point. The historical books make a point. The prophets make a point. The gospels make a point. The New Testament letters make a point. The apocalypse make a point. If you read through the Bible consecutively, you will grasp it better. And I hope you'll read it in big sections. One other thing I hope you'll do as your pastor. I was thinking back over my life when I grew the most spiritually. And I don't think it's a coincidence. The times that I've had the best spiritual growth spurts is when I was reading with friends the same thing my pastor was preaching through. Now, recently on Wednesday nights, our ladies have gone through Jude, and I'm really glad they have. They've unpacked further what has been exposited on Sunday morning. But most of my life, I was able to just do that organically with other people in the church, and I would encourage that to you. So if you're reading through Genesis as we're going through it, you'll get ahead and you'll notice something and you'll think, boy, I'm not sure about that. And then we'll preach through it and talk through it and grow together as a congregation through it. So this morning, as we introduce Joseph, perhaps you're new today or you're very unfamiliar with the Bible and you're uninitiated. That is a good thing. One of my friends who joined the Marines had never held a gun when he joined the Marines. And the Marines told him, we love training guys like you (laughs) because you have no bad habits. So if you're uninitiated today, that's actually a great thing. But if you're very initiated today, let me caution you because Joseph has become part of our pop American culture. And frankly, we have some very shallow, quasi-Christian Bible studies out there. And so many Americans like Joseph because we think of him like we think of Cinderella or Rocky Balboa. (laughs) or uh, any other rags-to-riches story where someone goes from fresh-faced teenager to man of the hour. And there's some movement like that in the story, but actually there's so much more theological richness to it. And so I pray that as we work through Joseph, you will much better understand how God reveals himself through Scripture and who the hero really is. So the title of today's opening sermon is The Beginning an apparent end of Joseph. And hopefully in your Bible, you're in Genesis 37. If you're using a pew Bible, it's also page 37, so easy to follow along. And if you have a bulletin, the four movements of what we're going to do today are on there. Here they are. Number one, Joseph the dreamer. Number two, Joseph's brothers. Number three, Joseph's brother, Judah in particular. Number four, Joseph and Potiphar's Wife. Now obviously thirty six chapters have happened already, and boy are they significant. (laughs) We get the creation of the cosmos. We get the entrance of sin into the universe. But then in Genesis three, sixteen, we get an incredible promise. God will reverse the curse and crush the serpent through a special child that He will send. But lest we have any doubt about whether or not the world is still sinful, the first two children, one murders the other. The world descends in incredible evil, and God sends a global flood to judge the earth. God is so gracious, he gives 120 years for anyone to turn to trust in him and to get on the ark. Only a handful do, Noah's family. Noah then repopulates the world, Unless we think it's going to be better this time, we have the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, and the world has descended almost immediately into incredible sin, violence, and wickedness then Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham. And to Abraham, God makes a covenant that he will, through Abraham, have a special people that are his own, and then he will have descendants. In fact, Abraham's descendants become really the theme of not just Genesis and the Old Testament, but through faith in Christ, the entirety of Scripture. And then in Genesis, after Abraham has Isaac, the son of the promise. Isaac has Jacob. God renames Jacob Israel in Genesis chapter 32 and 35. And that brings us to where we are today, Genesis 37 verse 1. Verse 1, Jacob, who's also called Israel, so don't be confused in the passage. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And then verse 2, we have a phrase, these are the generation's of Jacob. And I want to sidebar with you for just a minute so you can appreciate how intricately God wrote the Bible. That phrase in English, these are the generations of, is just one word in Hebrew. It's the word Toledoth. Now in our English Bible, we have 50 chapters, but when God wrote the Bible through Moses, he has 11 Toledoths. That's how Genesis actually breaks down. There's a prologue, and then there are 10. These are the generations of. If you think about it this way, Genesis is like a limited miniseries that only has 10 episodes to it. And this is the last episode. So now we've come to the part where this story concludes, and it concludes mainly through Joseph. So let's pick up in the text. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy. Notice he was a boy when his brothers were more like men. So he's 17 and his brothers are much older and he brings a report of them that's bad. Verse 3, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was a son of his old age. We learned right away that Jacob, also known as Israel, preferred Joseph sinfully. He favored him. He gave him a robe, we read here in the text, of many colors. It would have been a robe of an extended length to indicate that Joseph was granted special status. Many scholars think it means that that robe excluded Joseph from the menial labor that the rest of his brothers had to do. So Jacob was very sinful in his favoritism and made it very difficult for Joseph. So we're not surprised to read verse four that when the brothers saw that their father loved Joseph more than the others, they hated Joseph and could not speak peacefully to him. Of course, we have to pause and realize one application for us here is the danger of sinful preferential treatment. Of course, just to give some quick clarification, obviously that doesn't mean we need to Treat every single person exactly the same way. It is okay to treat people differently based on their personality. If you're a parent, you know there are some children that if you raise an eyebrow, they immediately stop what they're doing and they start crying. There are other children that you have a good 20-year run and they never never really, never really, I'm I'm working through some of those right now. So uh, yeah, it, it, it doesn't mean you need to treat everyone the same way. That would be very foolish to do. But it does mean you can't prefer someone in such a way that you give the others the clear understanding that you love this one and you don't love the others based on factors that are completely unfair. Jacob prefers Joseph because of when he was born. And he prefers Joseph because of, frankly, of whom he was born. He was born of Rachel. And if you know anything about Jacob, you know that favoritism has been his besetting sin his entire life. His entire life, he's been pitting some people against others. No, no dad, not Esau, me. And he and his mom worked that out. And then he wanted Rachel, and then he had Leah, and then he had Zilpah, and he had Bilhah, but he really loved Rachel. And then he had 12 sons, but he really loved one. And so you see the generational reverberating effects of sin. In fact, Ephesians 6 verse 4 says, fathers, Do not provoke your children to wrath. And Jacob is showing us how you provoke your children to wrath. In verse 4, they all hate Joseph because Jacob has been a very terrible father. Now, I I called movement one, Joseph the dreamer. And we see why here in verses 5 through 11. It's important to note that Joseph has two distinct dreams here. The first one is about sheaves. And all the sheaves bow to his sheaf. That's interesting that it's about sheaves because they're farmers of livestock. They didn't deal in grain. And so this lets you know that there's something in the future that God has for them. The second dream here is about the sun, moon, and the stars. That lets you know that this is about ruling and authority. Now, the fact that there are two different dreams actually is a big deal. In Genesis 41, when Joseph stands before Pharaoh, he'll tell Pharaoh this, the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God. This is very important because this means that Joseph understood these dreams to be revelation from God. He understood them to be truth. Let me pause then for a second because you may be thinking, I've had some weird dreams. (laughs) Are those revelation from God? Pastor, how do I know? How do I think through that? Well, I did just work through Jude, and I talked a lot about revelation there. Let me give you some summary reminders this morning. In the Bible, we do read that God does at time impart dreams as revelation from God. But even in the Old Testament era, we read that anyone who claims to have revelation from God, it must be attested and it must come true. And if it doesn't, according to Jeremiah 28 and 29, that person is a heretic. And in Jeremiah 28 and 29, God has stoned those who claim to hear from God when their claim was false. So 1 John 4, 1, test all the spirits. We're to test everything by scripture, even our dreams. Now, we would not normally expect dreams to be divine guidance today because Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that God in former days spoke a certain way, but now he speaks to us through his son, as revealed in Scripture. Even if we were to have a dream, we should probably be cautious, though, because many of our dreams tell us more about us than they do about God. But here we should notice in Genesis 37, Joseph does see these dreams as coming from God. Here's why that matters. Some people, when they read Genesis 37 and they read about Joseph, they say, man, Joseph really is a brat. (laughs) He has these dreams about people bowing down to him, and he's going to tell his brothers that. Now, Joseph surely may be socially tone deaf, but if he believes these dreams are divine truth, then he must share them. So Joseph is merely sharing what he understands as revelation from God. And before you think that he's sharing them unwisely, Did you notice how his own father responded in verse 11? Notice Jacob kept the saying in mind. Why would Jacob keep the saying in mind? Don't you remember Jacob's ladder? God gave Jacob a dream. And do you remember in Jacob's house, didn't the younger rule over the older? So surely Jacob knew. What Joseph is revealing here is probably truth, even if I don't like it. Joseph may have been socially tone deaf, but he is still sharing divine truth. And that leads us to a very important application for you and I. Friend, brother, sister, how do you respond to truth even when you don't like it? And when you don't like the person who's sharing it to you. How do you respond to truth when you don't like it and you may not like the person who's sharing it to you? Now to give you an example of the practical import of this, think of marriage. In marriage, you live with someone who sees the good, the bad, and the ugly. And you can either give that person the right to expose the things in you that still need to change from one degree of glory to the next, or you can be angry at that person because they have told you a truth that you don't want to hear, especially not from them. I've been reading through the book, The Meaning of Marriage, in the book, The author, I think, rightly reminds husbands and wives to give each other the right to speak truth to them so that God can change us. Because the truth is, some people know us well. In the book, he writes this, you may be a fearful person with a tendency toward anxiety. You may be a proud person with a tendency to be opinionated and selfish. You may be an inflexible person with a tendency to be demanding and sulky if you don't get your way. You may be an abrasive or harsh person that people tend to respect more than they like. You may be an undisciplined person with a tendency to be unreliable and disorganized. You may be an oblivious person who tends to be distracted, insensitive, and unaware of how you come across to others. You may be a perfectionist with a tendency to be judgmental and critical of others and down on yourself. You may be impatient, irritable, with a tendency to hold grudges or lose your temper, You may be highly independent, and you don't like to be responsible for the needs of others. You dislike having to make joint decisions, and you hate asking for help yourself. You may be a person who far too much wants to be liked, and so you shade the truth, and you're unwilling to say things that need to be said as you try to please everyone. You may be thrifty, but at the same time miserly with your money, unwilling to spend it on even your own needs appropriately, and you are ungenerous to others. Now, if those things are true of you, and they are true of all of us to some degree, have you granted anyone the right to give you truth? See, Joseph is sharing truth, but his brothers don't want to hear it. Remember what Jesus said in Mark 6:4: A prophet is not without honor except where? Among his own home, his own relatives, in your marriages, in your home, in this church. Give your brothers and sisters the right to share truth. We should be careful about thinking that something is not true just because we don't like it. So we must give people the right to share truth. Joseph may have been socially tone deaf. Maybe he could have learned how to share it better. But let's not reject something as true just because we don't like it. Now in verse 12. Joseph, this is number two on your handout. Joseph's brother's envy and favoritism. Now his brothers went to pasture his father's flock. And this part was read. So I'll just jump down to verse 14. Jacob sent Israel. Bad move. (laughs) Bad move. Verse 14. Joseph was willing to obey. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers in the flock and bring me word. A very unwise thing for Jacob to ask Joseph to do. But I want you to notice something in verse 18. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. That's hatred. Before he even arrives, they're planning, how can we murder our brother? But I want you to notice what they say twice about their brother, what they specifically hate about him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Isn't it easy to hate that person that's told you that truth that you really don't want to hear? 20, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then he will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what becomes of his dreams then. They call him this dreamer, which actually in Hebrew is Lord of the dreams, master of the dreams. They conspire to kill him. We can see the theme of Cain and Abel rising up and brothers again. But now verse 21, let's pick up where we haven't read yet. When Reuben heard it, He rescued Joseph out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. If you know Genesis well, it's very striking that Reuben, son of Leah, would stand up for Joseph. In fact, the last time we read about Reuben in Genesis 35, Reuben is sleeping with one of his father's wives. He's sleeping with one of his stepmoms. Reuben's character, we only know ill of it. His motives here are not revealed. We simply hear that he's now willing to step in for his brother. Verse 25, then they sit down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming down from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and on their way to carry it down to Egypt. It's striking that they're Ishmaelites. Remember, Ishmael is the son who did not come through obedience, but through disobedience. And so now God is weaving together this tapestry. Verse 26, then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let us not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. It's hard to take Judah very compassionately there. (laughs) This is an opportunistic get-rich-quick scheme that one of the brothers has come up with in a flash. And his brothers listen to him. 28, then Midianite traders, which are the Ishmaelites, passed by. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. 29, when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether, whether it is your son's robe or not. I want you to notice something here. The robe is now painted only one color. It's painted the color of blood. And they've used a goat that they've killed to deceive their father. The last time Jacob had a goat, He used it to deceive his father. He wore it on his arms to pretend that he was Esau. And now it's coming back. By the way, this is not karma. This is what Galatians 6 calls the sowing and reaping principle. Now Jacob will be deceived. Verse 33, he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him and Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his garments Put sackcloth on his loins and mourn for his son many days. He'll actually mourn for many years. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And then his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The brothers have now ironically deceived the father who was known as the deceiver. The sowing and reaping principle has happened, but actually what we most earnestly see in Genesis is the horrible collateral of sin. A son is sold. A father is inconsolable. Brothers that were thick and thieves in their hatred are now at odds even among one another. And sin's destructive calamity continues. Lest we think, I would never... Let's remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. You say, well, I've never murdered my brother, but if you hate your brother, in your heart. So you might say, well, no, I've never thrown anyone in a pit, but can we not socially do something similar? We see how easy it is to do this, how easy it is to cut someone off, how easy that reverberating sin affects so many others and how it springs from envy. The 10th commandment says, you shall not covet anything that is your neighbors, here these brothers hate Joseph because he is a different coat, and he has a different status. Now it's so easy to hate your brother and sister if you think they have it good, they have better status, they have better opportunities. It's so easy to hate your brother and sister in the church, if you think they have better gifts or better recognition. This is why Romans 12 tells the church, Rejoice with those who rejoice, as we must. Even if it's hard for us, if it's good for someone else, we rejoice. Here at the end of Genesis 37, we already have a couple big takeaways that may correct Hollywood's presentation. Here's our first big takeaway. Obedience does not guarantee earthly success or ease. Joseph has dutifully obeyed his father and he went to a pit and then he's sold all the way to Egypt. In fact, in the book of Genesis, don't forget, God told Abraham he'd send him to a land of promise, and now Joseph is geographically going the other way. All the blessing that you would expect to receive is now actually more distant. So it still can be true that doing right does not guarantee earthly or immediate success or ease. Also, we see here at the end of Genesis 37, many reject the truth because they don't like it. Sin blinds us to what is our greatest hope. Isn't it interesting that the dream actually has everybody having sheaves and everybody having stars, meaning that they all eat, they all rule. But for Joseph's brothers, it's not enough because they're not the key ruler. So it is so easy with us. Isn't it interesting that God designated one brother to save the others? And when the others learn of their Redeemer, their plan is to conspire to kill him. Does that not sound familiar? This prepares us for number three on your handout, Joseph's brother, Judah and Tamar. Genesis 38 seems so strange, especially to scholars who don't believe in the inerrancy of scripture, that they are liable to remove it. But actually it's here for a very important purpose. It reveals uncomfortable truth that helps us better grasp what's happening in the whole story. For time's sake, I'll summarize it to you and try to help us grasp what is a a rather graphic but necessary chapter. Judah has three sons. He has Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And his oldest son, Ur, marries Tamar. But Ur is so wicked that the Lord kills him. And then Judah's other sons fulfill what is a not required but common custom in the biblical era, and that sometimes is called leveret marriage. It's where a brother-in-law comes in to impregnate the widow of his deceased brother so that he can continue his brother's line so that his brother's line continues. So he marries his sister-in-law, continues the line, so that way his brother's line continues. Now, Ur Has died, And so Onan is supposed to come in and marry Tamar. But Onan actually, instead of marrying her and continuing the line, uses and abuses her. The text puts it graphically. I'll put it as gently as I possibly can. Onan is willing to begin but not fulfill his sexual relationship with Tamar. So he makes sure that she will not conceive, but he's happy to use her physically up until that point. And so the Lord, unsurprisingly, puts Onan to death as well. Onan's desire was to make sure he receives the double portion of his brother's deceased inheritance and doesn't have to share any of it with stepsons. So now Tamar is alone. She has no children. So what will she do? Well, Judah promises her that he will, she will now be able to marry his third and youngest son, Shelah. But much time goes on. And Judah does not keep his promise. Tamar now is a woman in the biblical era with no means of support or future, and she has no husband or no one to come alongside because Judah has failed to be good on his promise. So Tamar does something that is devious herself. She pretends that she is a shrine prostitute. As a Canaanite, she puts on a veil and she goes somewhere where people would go often and they would sleep with a temple prostitute. In that day, that was a common Canaanite practice of immorality, but they would reframe it rather than call it immorality. They would say that this was a way to increase the fertility and GDP of the population. We are always sophisticated sinners, and we're able to rebrand sin with many uh, devious new definitions. But actually what happens when Judah comes to Tamar is Tamar leaves her veil on, and he doesn't realize that he has now come to sleep with his own daughter-in-law. She then asked that he would leave items of collateral that she would give to him later. And so Judah does. Well, she leaves. No one knows it was her. Judah doesn't know it was her. And three months later, we all learn that Tamar is pregnant. Judah is incensed. He assumes that she must have done something adulterous, not waiting for the youngest son to marry her. And so he wants her to actually be put to death. And at the moment that she's going to be put to death, she produces the signet, the cord, and the staff that are Judah's that he gave to her when he came into her, assuming she was just a road prostitute. When she produces these items, Judah is humbled, and he says, my sin was greater than hers. So Tamar lives, and then Tamar continues the line. So what are we supposed to learn from such a strange and sordid chapter here in Genesis 38. Well, several things, but let me bring out a couple real quick. One thing we learn is that the sinfulness of Jacob's family has permeated every single person. Now we see that Jacob's family is just dissolving at the seams and the sinfulness is reverberating. But can I bring out another thing we learn? We learn that the Bible is true history. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes skeptics think, I can't believe the Bible is actually recording true history. Friend, if this was religious propaganda, it would not have this chapter in it. (laughs) The reason these chapters are in the Bible is because the patriarchs that we esteem so much were real people like you and I, and they are real sinners. And these warts actually show the painful honesty of a true record. Indeed, true history of anybody shares many uncomfortable things. So, from Genesis 38, though, we do see glimpses of the gospel, and here's how. Do you know when we come to Matthew 1, verse 3, whose name is in the genealogy of Jesus? Tamar. Tamar is. Here we see that God has a great heart for all peoples, and God does great reversals even from others who've been used and abused. Through the line of Tamar, Perez, and her other twin boy comes Jesus Christ. See, Jesus will come to suffer the penalty reserved for liars, the sexually immoral for the wicked. Praise God. God has preserved that line to show us his grace for the undeserving. But we have a glimpse of it here. Judah in Genesis 38 is about as bad as it can get. And I don't want to give away the whole rest of the story, but when we get to Genesis 50, we'll find out, well, there is a reason I did name one of my sons Judah. (laughs) It ends better than it started. So let me tell you this morning, for those of you who have loved ones that you're wondering, are they beyond hope? The arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Anybody who seems impossibly beyond hope can turn the way Judah did. In Genesis 38... He seems like he has no purpose by the end. We'll be amazed at how God uses him. But this leads us to movement four. And now this is Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Look with me in Genesis 39. This time we will read it. Genesis 39, verse one. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. Let me freeze there. You might be thinking, Egypt, why would God bring him there? Maybe God just messed up, got the directions wrong. Uh, In Genesis 15, verse 13. God told Abraham this, know for certain your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring them out as a nation with great possessions. You see, God is fulfilling his purpose through Joseph. Do you know why that's great news for you and I? Did you know that God is taking control of everything? He has the whole big picture worked out and that includes how he steers your life. See, the best news about your life is that God has a plan bigger than your life, but that includes your life. So God brings Joseph to Egypt because God's doing something bigger than Joseph, but that includes Joseph. Look where he brought him in verse 1. He brought him to Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian and brought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him there. And now verse two, the Lord was with Joseph. Now let me explain one more theological truth for you that I think is very important. Sometimes I've heard people say things like, well, hey, God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He can't be any more with someone than he is with someone else. That is not true. When the the Bible talks about God being with people, it doesn't mean spatially. It means spiritually. God is more with Joseph than he is with his brothers at this moment. You know you can be near or far from God, right? James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And that means near is God's favor and far is God's disfavor. So here God is favorably with Joseph. So look in verse 2. The Lord is with Joseph and for that reason... The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field, so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. But now the next phrase is actually meant to prepare us with some foreshadowing. The next phrase says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Did you know in the Bible, a person's appearance is not commented on very often. In fact, uh, You probably know that part where David is selected among his brothers, right? And Samuel's more impressed with all the other brothers. And then God says to Samuel, do not look at the outward appearance because God does not look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. But when the Bible does record one's appearance and when it records it favorably, it's often a foreshadow of potential danger. In fact, here, Joseph is described as handsome in form and appearance. That exact phrase is only used elsewhere of Rachel, his mother. I pause here for this reason. As Americans, we tend to be overly concerned about our appearance. It's okay to be concerned about our appearance. It's wrong to be obsessed with our appearance. And we should notice from the Bible that an appearance can be something that actually can invite some unique temptations. So let me say it this way. If you think your children and grandchildren are beautiful, great. Now pray for their purity. Verse 7. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But Joseph re- refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. And this is the most important phrase. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph realizes all sin is against God. It's not just against my master. It's not just against you. It's not just against my family. All sin is against God. How could I sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph, day After day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her, which is a euphemism for sex or to be with her. So Potiphar's wife desires Joseph sexually because of the way he looks. Joseph's purity here is exemplary and remarkable. Joseph won't disobey in God's sight, and he resists after daily pressure. But now notice verse 11, which also is under God's providence. But one day when Joseph went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and then fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. time of temptation, which was probably close to 10 years, comes to a day in which Joseph is totally alone in the house. And Joseph literally has to flee temptation. And once again, a garment is used to deceive. The robe of many colors was used to deceive Jacob, but now the garment is used to deceive Potiphar as evidence of an attempted rape, when in fact the accusation is false and yet the accusation alone is enough to apparently ruin Joseph's life. Now do you understand why Genesis 38 is followed by Genesis 39? Let me explain this to you because I think this is extremely important. I was with some pastors in, uh, in North Carolina, actually. We were together talking about sexual sin and how to pastor our churches through sexual sin. And one of the pastors said something that really caught me. He, he said, you know, brothers, all cases of sexual sin are the male's fault. All cases of sexual sin are the male's fault. And I said, what do you mean? He said, all sexual sin is solely the male's fault because males inherently are from positions of power and therefore all sexual sin is theirs. When I thought of that, I realized that this brother pastor, a Southern Baptist pastor in our state, is actually much more influenced by hegemony, critical race theory, intersectionality, and Marxism than he is by the Bible. In his mind, he has oppressor and oppressed, and I immediately thought of Genesis 39 and Proverbs 7. Here's why Genesis 39 and 38 are right next to each other. Let me explain very clearly. In Genesis 38, males are sexually abusing a woman, Onan and Ur and Judah misuse Tamar. But in Genesis 39, a woman is sexually oppressing a man, Potiphar's wife, is pursuing Joseph. Let me go further. In Genesis 38, Jews are oppressing through Gentile immorality, Canaanite practices. But in Genesis 39, an Egyptian is oppressing a Jew. Let me go further. In Genesis 38, poor farmers are committing sexual sin. In Genesis 39, one of the wealthiest 1% of the top 1% of the world is performing sexual sin. Here's why this matters. Do you know Romans 3.23? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Very few people know that that's finishing a sentence that starts in verse 22. Do you know what starts in verse 22? For there is no distinction. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the next time you're watching CNN, and a guy with a PhD who just released a book gets on there and says, well, you know, evil is based on your race, or your gender, or your socioeconomic status, or where you were born. He's wrong. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The conditions within which we are born can fan the flame, but they did not cause the flame. We sin because we're already sinners. So Genesis 38 and 39 are there to show us that anybody can sin. Anybody can sin. Look how it continues in verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me? His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. Potiphar's angry, but he doesn't execute Joseph. Why not? That would have been the punishment for that crime in that era. It would have been execution. Why does Potiphar not execute Joseph? I think most scholars are right when they suppose this is the reason. He's seen Joseph for 10 years now, and he knows Joseph's character. And he's seen his wife for longer, and he knows her character. And he knows that this didn't really happen, but he knows he has to do something. So he throws Joseph in prison, but he doesn't kill him. And so Joseph is a faithful man with the integrity to show it, who will suffer for righteousness sake. You know, in America, we have several cliches that we start to think are Bible verses. Maybe you've heard cleanliness is next to godliness. Don't search your concordance. It's not in there. Maybe you've also heard this one. If you do the right thing, it'll all work out for you. You know, that's not what the Bible teaches, right? So, 2 Timothy 3, verse 11. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. John 15, the words of Jesus, verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, and I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Matthew 5, verse 10, the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven galatians 4 verse 29 just like isaac's children of the promise were persecuted so it is now first thessalonians 3 3 through 4 no one should be moved by these afflictions for you know we are destined for these first peter 4 verse 12 beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So, brothers and sisters, when someone on television says, hey, if you do all the right things, life will be easy, I think we can safely say that person maybe has read a Hallmark card, but not the Bible. That person has read Instagram verses, but not Scripture. So, again, takeaways from Genesis 39. Obedience does not guarantee earthly success or ease. I've spent a lot of time doing prison ministry. I love doing it. And many times when I've been in prison, many, many times, someone will raise their hand and say to me, but Josh, I was falsely accused when I was put in here. And everything behind this situation is untrue. And I always say to them, you might be right. God knows. Maybe you were falsely accused. And then I tell them about Joseph. And then I look at them and I say this, but what if even through a genuinely false accusation, you come out 30 years later, and God has ripened fruit of the spirit in you that you never otherwise would have had. See, Joseph comes out with integrity. In light of eternity, which one would you rather have? Free reign or character? Genesis 1 reminds us Joseph is not a rockier Cinderella story. This is a real person who suffers for a long time. He pays an incredibly high price for integrity as many Christians do. Number two, God's empowering presence, praise God, God's empowering presence is not tied to suitable circumstances. God can work when the sun is shining, but God can work when you're in prison. (laughs) God can work when you're in the field or when you're in the pit. And I love reading that phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. Number three, the scales of justice are never fully balanced in this life. The scales of justice are never fully balanced in this life. But the tensions that we have here in these opening chapters, 37, 38, and 39, justice, injustice, wickedness, courage, truth, evil, actually coalesce in the life of Jesus. See, Joseph was sharing dreams that he believed to be from God, but his own brothers refused them. But Jesus was the word become flesh, and he came unto his own and his own received him not. Joseph had a bloody robe meant to mock his dreams, but Jesus had a bloody robe meant to mock his claim as God. Judah sold Joseph for silver, and then Judas betrayed Jesus for silver. Joseph was brought before Potiphar, who we think probably found no fault in him, and yet threw him in prison anyway. Jesus was brought before Pilate, who said he found no fault with him, but crucified him anyway. See, in Genesis, what we'll see by the end of chapter 50 is the big thing that was going on is that God was preserving the messianic line. Joseph was in Egypt so that Jacob wouldn't starve and so that there would be a Messiah. But the reason that God is preserving Jacob's family is so that God can crush his own own son for sinners like Jacob and sinners like you and I. Actually, what the life of Joseph shows us is our need for a Savior like Jesus. Because today we still live in a day of broken families. And we still live in a day of envy and jealousy and favoritism. We still live in a day where sex is predatory rather than covenantal. Where sex is self-gratifying rather than marital. We still live in a day of false accusations that ruin people's lives. And we live in a day where people reject divine revelation. And so we should be able to, like Joseph will by the end of the book, say what God intended, what you intended for evil, God intended for good so that he might preserve a line so that he might send Jesus. So this morning as we begin this study about Joseph, let's make sure we trace the thread all the way to the foot of the cross. See the person who came for liars, for the sexually sinful, for the people who failed, where we see Jesus who bled for the unrighteous so that he could give us his righteousness. And let's pray now in his name. God, we pray, Lord, that we would turn from our sin as it's exposed to us in these chapters of the Bible. Some of us are committing the sin of favoritism. We have unfairly, preferentially granted some people treatment because we find them easier or because we have other inclinations towards them, and we've been unduly harsh and dismissive of others. Forgive us of that sin. Perhaps this morning, Lord, we've committed the sin of sexual impurity. Unlike Joseph, we've caved when the sexual temptation has come. We've found ourselves maybe like Judah or his sons using someone for our own gratification. Forgive us of that serious sin, Lord. Because we know, as we saw Onan and Ur, the wages of sin is is death, actually. We understand that the free gift of God is eternal life, but that is only possible because someone innocent had to take the punishment we deserve. Lord, Jesus died so that we wouldn't have to die eternally. We're struck by that. Lord, we see in this passage deception. Deception. We know, Lord, that we can be those who exaggerate and who manipulate facts so that we come out looking better than we really are. We understand that we are liars and that there is a place in hell, Revelation says, for all liars. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is the truth and may he cover our sin with his blood. Lord, also in this passage, we realize that sin reverberates, and and we have to be honest, there's a sowing and reaping principle. Remind us, Lord, that there are things that can be reaped generations later in a family. There are patterns that we bequeath to our great-grandchildren if we do not turn from them and see the Spirit ripen fruit where there was once vice. So may you change our very character. Lord, we, we know that Joseph we see many good things written about him here, but we know that he was a sinner too. And so Lord, we thank you that there is only one who is perfectly innocent. And Lord, we do thank you that this Friday, we remember that the innocent was crucified in between guilty sinners to remind us that he would fully take the place of any sinner who would come to him in repentant faith. Lord, I pray that for any who are listening who need to be saved this morning. But Lord, finally, I pray a couple big picture things for the brothers and sisters here who I love. Lord, would you help us persevere in hope? Not everything gets balanced in this life. As we say, no good deed seems to go unpunished. But Lord, thank you that one day you will right all wrongs. And what seems to be happening here is not the end of the story. And so we can have hope we, we may have a son or a grandson that seems impossibly beyond turning around. Thank you for turning around, Judah. Thank you for granting Tamar the line of Christ. Lord, thank you for your redemptive power that sometimes goes way beyond our expectations, even in our own lifetime. And give us the long look that you granted Joseph. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scali pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.